Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, and welcome to the jungle. So, uh, got a packed one for you today. Whole bunch of stuff lined up. Give you a little rundown as to what you have to look forward to. We got um, Alex Jones making some claims about vaccine proponents. <laughs> that uh, typical classic Alex Jones. By the way, don't ask me where the fuck I found his show because I didn't find his show. Somebody else found his show, and I saw a clip on Twitter. That dude is more buried than Jimmy Hoffa. Mm. We have Hunter Biden in the show today. Uh, He helped a very specific Fox host. That's a hilarious story. There's hypocrisy, uh, deep hypocrisy in that story. Um, I got another, a new interview with Kirsten Sinema, a new interview with former President Donald Trump. Um, A nice little I told you so from the Bernie supporters. Uh, we got the Iran talks. I'll tell you what's going on with the Iran talks. This is something that uh, nobody's covering in detail. Well, I'm going to do that for you. We also have um, uh, new Democratic polling. We have uh, some a new critical race theory bill, which really gets to the bottom of what the whole critical race theory panic is about. And um, not a surprise, it is not about what they pretend it's about. So you don't want to miss that. All right, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Here we go. Alex Jones um, has a show, still. Uh, It's more buried than a dead guy. Uh, I I don't even know where to find it, to be honest, but there was a a clip that popped up on Twitter that I want to share with you. He's still talking about the vaccines, still doubting them, and he has quite a claim that he makes here. Dr. Paul, I know you're not on the enemy's team. I know you got bamboozled. Don't be arrogant. 
Trump listened to you, Senator Paul, Dr. Paul. He's one of the main reasons you went with warp speed. Admit you were conned Rand Paul. Your father needs to come out as well. So does Donald Trump. And I'm going to keep hammering this for months. And if you don't, you're going to stand trial in Nuremberg too as well. But I'm not going to sit here and risk my life doing this and not watch you put your skin in the game. I know they broke your ribs. I know they shot at you. I know you're good, Rand Paul. Vaccine proponents are going to stand trial at Nuremberg, according to Alex Jones. Hey, Alex, even the illegal Iraq war proponents didn't stand trial at Nuremberg. They violated every international law in the book, anti-torture laws. Uh, They violated every UN rule about how you wage war. You're not allowed to do it offensively. Uh, In fact, the U.N. said you cannot go into Iraq, George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, and the rest of them, Donald Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz. They went into Iraq. Minimum hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians died, and even they did not stand trial at Nuremberg. For Christ's sake, right now in Iran, starting under Trump and continuing under Biden, we are sanctioning medicine going into Iran. The International Criminal Court said you can't do that. That's illegal. And we were like, okay, go ahead and sanction us with your army. Oh, that's right. You don't have one. So how about you go to shut the fuck up, Sville? So we're violating international law is what happens on a Tuesday before brunch in the United States of America. Now, by the way, that's terrible. And people actually, that shouldn't be the case. And they should be brought down. And there should be a trial at Nuremberg. And as... uh, Noam Chomsky famously said, if the Nuremberg laws were upheld, every post-World War II president, U.S. president, would be hanged. I don't know if I go as far as hanging because, I, you know, I, I'm against the death penalty because at least 4% of the time we get the wrong people. I'm against it in principle. Um, but, yeah, of course American leaders should go down. They're not going down. He's saying that the people who decided to fast-track the creation of this COVID vaccine, they're going to stand trial at Nuremberg. What the hell are you talking about? So let me throw up a couple graphics here so you can see just how crazy Alex Jones is. French study of over 22 million people finds vaccines cut severe COVID risk by 90%. Largest study of its kind also finds vaccines appear to protect against worst effects of Delta variant. More. People who are not fully vaccinated are seven times more likely to be positive for COVID-19. 49 times more likely to be hospitalized for COVID-19. 32 times more likely to die of COVID-19, uh, COVID-19 related illness. This is in uh, King County and Seattle. So it's a nice little case study. So here's what this looks like in a chart form. That uh, line is not fully vaccinated people. And look at how it spikes for hospitalization. So unvaccinated people are the ones who are getting hammered by COVID. And then that uh, line all the way at the bottom, which barely ticks up at all, is hospitalizations for fully vaccinated people. So in other words, I'll break this down very simply. The best thing that Donald Trump ever did was fast track that mRNA vaccine and cut the red tape. That's the best thing he ever did. And 
you know, according to Alex Jones, I don't even know if this is true. It might be true. The idea that Rand Paul was one of the people who prodded him in this direction or, you know, talked to Trump about vaccines, whatever it may be. Um, if he did do that, that's one of the best things, if not the best thing, that Rand Paul has ever done, too. So the idea that they're going to stand trial at Nuremberg for the best thing that they ever did. I mean, on what planet did any of you guys think there'd be a segment that I do today where I'm giving Donald Trump and Rand Paul more credit than Alex Jones is giving them? Stand trial at Nuremberg. Are you kidding me? This is, look, Barack Obama should not have gotten the Nobel Peace Prize. I have a rule. If you ever order a drone strike that kills innocent civilians, strike one, you're out. You shouldn't get the Nobel Peace Prize. So Barack Obama shouldn't have gotten the Nobel Peace Prize. Neither should Donald Trump killed countless civilians with drone strikes, continued a lot of our wars, uh, sanctioned a bunch of countries out the wazoo, which does lead to death. Um, So we shouldn't get the Nobel Peace Prize ever. But if you were going to make an argument that, uh, you know, these people should, this would be the first thing on the list to say, you know what, that's the best thing they did. Fast track, help fast track this vaccine. Now, by the way, just so everybody understands, it's not just the U.S. There's, you know, there's a a number of versions of this vaccine, including vaccines that were created overseas. And if, if I remember correctly, I think um, some of the technology, if not most of the technology, was originally created overseas. So it's not like Donald Trump or, or Rand Paul or whoever uh, deserves all the credit. But this is something that they did, which is correct in principle and did have real world outcomes where now we have, uh, you know, a number of vaccines that work phenomenally well. Guys, the real scandal around the vaccines, and you guys know this if you watch this show regularly, is that we have vaccine apartheid in the world. So what that means is in developing countries, we have more vaccines than we know what to do with. And people have already been fully vaccinated and they're getting their booster shots. But, you know, like 6 or 7% of Africa is vaccinated. And a lot of the developing world is unvaccinated. And so what happens in that scenario is the virus spreads unabated in these places. And then you get new variants. And then with those new variants, then that leads to more rounds of booster shots that are needed. And the developing world continues to hoard more of the vaccines. And we're trying to get vaccines to, to the developing world through Bill Gates' COVAX program, which is nothing but a giant scam. It's a total scam. He's not hitting anywhere near the numbers that he needs to hit. And he knows that. And he doesn't care. He cares more about keeping the, the patents for the vaccines and thereby padding the bottom line and creating more profit for big pharma. So that's the real scandal is vaccine apartheid. Alex Jones tries to argue the real scandal is that we have a vaccine at all and it's bad and it's nefarious. And he probably, I don't know how far he goes on his conspiracy theories, but I've seen many of the COVID vaccine conspiracy theories and they really hop on the short bus quickly. So they have, there's one with, oh, it's got a microchip in it or whatever. I mean, it's just it, lunatic stuff. I don't know how far Alex Jones goes with that, but clearly he's anti-vaccine and he's prodding Donald Trump and he's prodding Rand Paul to come out and admit that the vaccine's bad. And if not, you're going to stand trial at Nuremberg for the best thing you guys ever did. What a complete and utter joke, man. Look, I, I don't know how else to make the argument. I've made it a thousand times on this show. The, um, the bread and butter of the anti-vax movement is uh, anecdotal bullshit. Anecdotal bullshit. So you, so you take a story about an individual who had a negative reaction to the vaccine, and then 
you leave the impression in people's minds that this is happening more generally and that the downsides of the vaccine way outweigh the upsides of the vaccine. And that is just factually, empirically incorrect. And I've, made, I've said this before, I really don't think people digest this point. But if you digest this point, it's game, set, match on the whole anti-vax ideology. Even if I grant vaccine skeptics every claim they make about the VAERS program, which is supposed to be this, this, uh, this thing where people report adverse side effects and symptoms from the vaccine. Even if I grant the anti-vaxxers everything in, the, in uh, VAERS, and by the way, I don't, just so we're clear, because what happens is a lot of these anti-vax fanatics uh, will work backwards from their conclusion and do anything to make their point. So I've no doubt that a lot of people flooded the VAERS uh, program and reported things that didn't happen and they didn't even get the vaccine. So they're just trying to pile on. But look, look, look at the negative effects of the vaccines. But that's neither here nor there. Even if that's not the case, even if I grant them everything that, that they say in VAERS, you still should get the vaccine. Why? Because the, the downsides and the numbers of the negative side effects in VAERS pale in comparison to the negative side effects of COVID. We have nearly 800,000 Americans who died. 800,000 Americans who died from COVID. Millions throughout the world. And so even if you say there are you know, a bunch of negative side effects from this vaccine and in a tiny percentage this negative thing happens or that negative thing happens or death happens, it still would make logical sense to get the vaccine. So there's just, there's not a single leg for the anti-vaxxers to stand on. And Alex Jones is just such a great example of how absurd they get. Stand trial in Nuremberg over the COVID vaccine. On what fucking planet, dude? On what planet? The best thing that they ever did. And I think that's, that's pretty obvious. I think most people find that obvious, except for Alex Jones and a small group of very vocal anti-vaxxers. Okay, so we're going to talk about Hunter Biden. Here we go again. The old George Carlin quote is going to pop up. How many times have we mentioned this famous quote on the show? It's a big club, and you ain't in it. Here's the best headline that backs up that notion. Tucker Carlson asked Hunter Biden to help his son get into college. The email exchange was leaked as part of the ongoing civil war inside QAnon. Now, I must say, when I read that headline, at first I was very skeptical, because um, that seems so absurd. For a guy like Tucker, that seems so absurd so out of character. And I was like, this could easily just be made up. And one of the reasons I thought that is because the guy who's making the claims is a, a famous QAnon guy, and he's a famous stop the steal idiot. And so it's not like these people are against making stuff up. They make stuff up all the time. And so at first, I, I did have a, a healthy amount of skepticism. However, I will say, um, I don't think that skepticism is merited upon reading more about this story. So uh, here's what happened. Tucker asked for a, a letter of recommendation for his son. By the way, his son's name is Buckley. I just, it's, I know that this is a side point, and maybe this is a cheap shot, but if you have the names Tucker and Buckley on, in no world and even in no simulation, would you be a populist? Tucker and Buckley are like the most 
Thurston Howell, the third ass type names I've ever heard in my life. So um, he asked Hunter Biden for a letter of recommendation for Buckley to get into Georgetown University, which is Hunter Biden's alma mater. Now, uh, I think Hunter wrote it, and apparently he didn't end up going there. I think he went to University of Virginia, but, you know, Tucker was very thankful that Hunter did write the letter of recommendation. Quote, this is, it, the email's actually leaked. The emails are, are posted. Quote, I can't thank you enough for writing that letter to Georgetown on Buckley's behalf, Carlson wrote in a 2014 email to Biden. So nice of you. I know it'll help. Hope you're great and we can all get dinner soon. Uh, Hunter Biden responded, hey, buddy, I need Buckley's CV if you have one handy. Thanks. Um, now, the guy who's posting all this is a pro-Trump lawyer named Lynn Wood. This is on his Telegram account. So why did this happen? Why is there this internal right-wing war going on right now? Well, uh, this guy, Lynn Wood, decided to go scorched earth uh, and have this right-wing civil war. And it's, by the way, this is splitting QAnon, too. And it was triggered because of Tucker Carlson's interview with Kyle Rittenhouse, where Kyle Rittenhouse criticized Lynn Wood because Lynn Wood uh, briefly represented him last year. Rittenhouse said that Wood had, quote, taken advantage of him and was the reason he spent 87 days in jail. And Kyle Rittenhouse also claimed that the $2 million that Lynn Wood raised uh, on Kyle's behalf was not actually used for Kyle, and it was used, quote, for their own benefit. Um, now, so that's what started this. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse said that on Tucker Carlson's show. Tucker Carlson gave zero pushback, even though Tucker knows Lynn Wood, and they were friendly, and they would text. And so Lynn Wood was butthurt over that, and then that sort of led to this right-wing war. Um, now, at, to this point, look, I'm still, I'm still in the place of like, well, this could still be made up. The guy, Lynn Wood, is definitely a liar. The Q people are insane. The Stop the Steal people just make stuff up. And as bad as Tucker Carlson is, and he is, and as much of a liar as he is, and he is, the QAnon people are worse. I mean, it's just that I think those are relatively innocuous and obvious claims. Um, but here's where my mind changed. So in the article in, in Vice, they lay this out. Tucker Carlson actually has admitted on his show previously that he knows Hunter Biden and his wife well, whoa. So here's what he said in a previous broadcast of his show. Quote, I never thought Hunter Biden was a bad person. He said uh, during one of his nightly broadcasts, quote, I thought he had demons, but in the time I knew him, he kept them mostly under control. At some point, he lost control of those demons, and the world knows that, knows that now. He's now humiliated and alone, probably too strong to say we feel sorry for Hunter Biden. But the point is, pounding on a man, jumping on and piling on when he's already down is something we don't want to be involved in. That sounds to me like a guy who is not going after the low-hanging fruit because the low-hanging fruit helped his son get a letter of recommendation to get into Georgetown, and he likes him. So I think, I think it's real. I think the story's real. I do. Um, George Carlin, brilliant yet again. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. Tucker Carlson and Hunter Biden hobnobbing together. See, this is what, this is what partisan hacks will never, ever tell you. This is what tribal political idiots will never, ever tell you. Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, they are, um, you know, Chelsea Clinton. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are just mirror images of each other. In fact, I always said, I thought that Trump was always jealous of Hillary because Hillary is beloved by the establishment. And Trump does all this anti-establishment talk, but I think it's because he feels slighted by them. He feels like he's not accepted by them when he wants to be accepted by them. 
I mean, this is a guy, look at his style, go, all gold everything. I mean, he's got, like, cash money millionaire style. It's so gaudy and gregarious. And it's an attempt to be like, I'm, I'm like you guys, right? I'm one of the best. I, I'm in the top 1%. I'm like the king of the 1%. Don't you guys like me? Oh, oh, you don't? Look at the Clinton Foundation. Look at the Clinton Foundation. They would take millions of dollars from authoritarian theocracies, Gulf dictatorships, and then they turn around and give them weapons deals. Donald Trump did the exact same thing. Donald Trump raised $300,000 from Saudi Arabia through his hotel and then gave them a multi-billion dollar weapons deal. Jared Kushner right now is going to Saudi Arabia and getting billions of dollars from them after serving them when he was in office with Trump and protecting them when uh, Mohammed bin Salman killed Jamal Khashoggi. So they're all, they all do the same shit. They all work together. This is the way it works. You know, uh, there's a million Clinton frauds out there, and there's a million Trump frauds out there. There was literally a Trump fraud where he had to pay out millions of dollars because of his Trump university, which wasn't even a university. You can't just call something a university. There's an approval process. You have to be accredited. And he wasn't. He just called it a university. The classic scam tactics of upselling. And he ended up having to pay out millions of dollars. I mean, these are the, the kinds of people that we're dealing with here. There was a Clinton Foundation, there was a Trump Foundation, and the Trump businesses. They raise money from all these global uh, capital interests, and then they end up serving them. They are the same. And now you see, perhaps, Tucker Carlson and Hunter Biden, they're not, uh, you know, enemies. They don't disagree ideologically. They're from money and privilege, and, uh, you know, they live as such. Isn't Tucker Carlson the heir to, like, Swanson Wealth? So, I mean, again, you just can't see, there's no better illustration of our politics than this story right here. All the, the, uh, the culture war posturing about, you know, the sides being at odds with each other, that's all a distraction from the fact that there's an owner class and there's a top 1% and they're in the club and you're not in the club. And everything that our government does is to protect the money, the wealth, and the power of the billionaires, the corporations, and the top 1% against the 99%. And even uh, they're doing this kabuki theater about hating each other and going after each other when really behind the scenes they're getting letters of recommendation for their son's Buckley to get into college. Oh, man. Fake populist if I've ever seen one in my life. There you have it. All right, next. Now let's talk about Chris Cuomo. I made a prediction that turned out to be dead wrong. I predicted that Chris Cuomo um, would eventually be brought back by CNN because the, the phrase they used to describe him being axed is indefinitely suspended. And those are weasel words. Those are weasel words for he ain't fired. We're going to put him on the bench for a while and bring him back. Now, the other piece of evidence for that argument is the fact that they brought back Jeffrey Skeeter Tubin. Jeffrey Tubin beat off on a Zoom call with other CNN employees there and accidentally left his camera on, was caught doing it, and Homeboy was brought back like in three months or some shit. I might be getting that, uh, the timing wrong in terms of how soon they brought him back, but they brought him back. 
they brought him back, which is crazy to me. Um, so what ended up happening with Chris Cuomo is that he did finally get fired. CNN released a new statement a couple days later, and they're like, yeah, he's fired, he's done, he's out. But the reasoning is not what you think. So take a look at this. Attorneys for a former CNN employee ready to provide the network with evidence that then-host Chris Cuomo had engaged in sexual misconduct before he was fired over the weekend. The New York Times reported that the attorney, Deborah S. Katz, had informed CNN of the uh, allegation on Wednesday. The network fired Cuomo on Saturday, citing his defense of his brother, former governor. Um, they didn't fire him. They indefinitely suspended him. Uh, former governor Andrew Cuomo, who has been accused of sexual misconduct. In a statement released on Sunday, Katz revealed that her client had offered to provide CNN with evidence of Cuomo's sexual misconduct on Friday before he was fired. By Friday, I was in discussions with CNN about providing documentary evidence of my client's allegations and making my client available for an interview with CNN's outside counsel, Katz said in a statement. Last night, CNN acted promptly on my client's complaint and fired Mr. Cuomo. So, let me explain what went down here. They nominally, indefinitely suspended him for... um, information that he was basically doing oppo research on his brother's accusers, using his connections to get more information, to get ahead of the story. He was helping his brother craft the responses. Uh, So he was very, very directly involved with playing defense for his brother when his brother's a politician and he is supposed to be a journalist or a reporter. So he's not doing his job. He's not giving facts and information and news and serving the public and telling people information. What he's doing is uh, just rank political hatchet job for his Democratic governor, brother. So he was indefinitely suspended when the details came out that he was more involved than he pretended to be early on. Okay. But he was fired because during the indefinite suspension, somebody went to CNN and said, actually, Chris Cuomo is doing some Me Too shit as well, and I have evidence of it. And then CNN was like, okay, well, what are we going to do now? We're going to let him go. By the way, there was a Me Too story about Chris Cuomo that came out a little while ago that didn't land as much as I thought it would. There wasn't as big, uh, you know, it wasn't as big of a story as you would have expected, but apparently he was at some party and he grabbed one of his former co-workers' asses in front of that co-worker's husband, and then he ended up writing an apology email later saying, I'm sorry, I got too excited, didn't mean anything by it, blah, blah, blah. So Homeboy was grabbing booty in front of, his former co-worker's husband, and he thought like nothing of it. And then later on, he apologized and sent an email. So that story leaked. So it was sort of like a Me Too thing for him there. But it, it was barely a blip in the radar to my surprise. I thought that story would land more. Now, I don't know if this story that they're talking about is um, the same Me Too event where the person is going to provide evidence of that, or it's just a totally separate Me Too event. My guess is it's a separate Me Too event because, look, what you find with this stuff is, if, if the accusations are real, it's never just one thing. Because there's always a pattern. Because if somebody does it and gets away with it, then they're the type of person that's going to keep doing it. That's why whenever you hear, you know, allegations of the sort, it's like a, a dam breaking effect. Where there's a drip drip and then all of a sudden there's a fucking tsunami that comes because uh, there's 20, 30, 40 examples of this sort of stuff. And so that's what happened with Andrew Cuomo. Now, to be fair, some of the allegations against Cuomo, uh, Andrew Cuomo uh, were not legitimate, but 
I've listened to the details of all of them, and there's no doubt that a lot of them were totally legitimate. And so it looks like Chris Cuomo was involved in a similar type of behavior. And what happened was he was already indefinitely suspended. And then when you got another Me Too allegation against Chris Cuomo, they were like, this is more of a headache than we're willing to handle for the guy. And so they fired him. And so he's gone. So there you have it. Now, the fact of the matter is, and you guys know this because in the last segment on Chris Cuomo, we talked about this. It should have never gotten to this place in the first place. Chris Cuomo used to have Andrew Cuomo on his show during the height of COVID early on. And he would just do nothing but throw him softballs down the center of the plate and portray him like America's greatest governor and uh, was giving him nothing but credit and accolades. And, it, you know, Andrew Cuomo's approval rating at the time was very high. He was given these, like, daily COVID briefings, and people thought he's a leader and he's in control. Well, come to find out, he was making horrendous decisions behind the scenes. He was allowing COVID-positive nursing home patients back into the nursing home, which led to COVID to spread through nursing homes like wildfire, killing countless, um, you know, older folks in New York. He, he was, they were rigging the numbers and, and keeping them lower than what they actually were. Um, this is a guy who not only was involved with terrible COVID decision-making, he was writing a book about how he defeated COVID while he wasn't defeating COVID, and he was making terrible decisions. I mean, just egregious stuff. Then there's all the corruption scandals. One of his top aides went down for corruption. They used uh, the wrong supplies on, on a bridge in New York and then tried to cover it up. I mean, the list goes on and on of all the terrible things this, this guy was involved in, created an anti-corruption commission. Then when that commission looked into him and his allies, he axed the commission. He uh, disbanded the commission. Just, it's just a total political hack. So, look, if you're going to have him on your show, Chris Cuomo, when, when – he's flying high and everybody likes the guy and there's all this propaganda on his side, well, then you have a moral obligation when the shit hits the fan to talk about it, uh, to talk about the negative aspects of it because it's, it's, they're facts and it's information and it's news and it's important and you need to educate your audience. Now, this is where people say, yeah, but you have a loyalty to your brother above all else because you have a loyalty to your family above all else, to which I respond, fair enough, step down, get off your CNN show. If you really want to choose your family, over your professional responsibility, then choose your family over your professional responsibility. Step down. Say, look, I'm in no position to do this. I have a conflict of interest. That's obvious. And so I can't do my job effectively. So I'm out. That's it. And he didn't do that. He went from giving him nothing but positive coverage. And then when the shit hit the fan, it's like, oh, I can't talk about my brother because I have a conflict of interest. Well, if you had a conflict of interest, you also had it when you were doing propaganda for him and you shouldn't have done the propaganda for him. Duh. So anyway, going, going, gone. Um, Chris Cuomo's out, but it's not for the reason you think. I think they were planning on bringing him back, right along with Jeffrey Skeeter Tubin. But um, when you got more Me Too allegations, they were like, okay, what are we going to do? This is, this is one too many things, and now he's out ski. Okay. Next. We're going to go to Kristen Cinema, Kirsten Cinema. So Kirsten Cinema sat down for an interview with CNN. She's done very few media appearances um, this entire time. She's been directly involved in the Build Back Better negotiations. She did one with a local 
Arizona reporter, and it was one of the worst interviews I've ever seen. I covered that and ripped it to shreds. You should check out that video. Well, now CNN comes in, and they do no better. So she's going to massively contradict herself within a time span of like a minute here, and she's going to get tangled in a web of her own lies. One of the ways that you negotiate in talking with your colleagues is that you're pretty forthcoming about where you stand on something. We talked about the corporate tax rate. Why do you think it is that your leadership sometimes overpromises? Do you think that that's a problem for voters and for the Democratic Party? Well, I can always speak to myself. But what I can say is this. I would never promise something to the American people that I can't deliver. And I think it's not responsible for elected leaders to do that. The concern I have is that, first, it's not very honest. So you should just be honest. Um, that's something my parents taught me when I was very young, and it stuck. Some of your colleagues, some of them progressives, think that you're kind of an enigma, that they're not sure where you stand on any one issue while you're in the middle of a negotiation. Do you think that that's a fair criticism of you? I think I'm very direct. And I am very upfront uh, when I talk to folks about what I believe in, what I can support, and what I can't support. So I think there are some people who just don't like what they're hearing, and maybe they use other terms to describe it. But uh, folks in Arizona know that I've always been a straight shooter and always will be. Would you be willing to vote with Democrats to hold up the president's mandates? Well, I'm not going to tell you those things. Uh, what I will do, though, is make sure that I'm voting in the interest of Arizonans. It is impossible to parody that. She says, look, just be honest. Just be honest. I'm a straight shooter. I'm direct. I'm up front. Then the host goes, do you support President Biden's mandates? Talking about the vaccine mandate or test approach. And she says, I'm not going to tell you that. You just said you are honest, direct, upfront, and a straight shooter. And then when you're asked a direct question, you say, I'm not going to answer that. There's nothing honest, straight shooting, direct, or upfront about dodging a very basic question about where you stand on a very basic policy. What do you think your job is, Kirsten Cinema? What do you think it is? Your job is to talk politics and policy and vote on policy to improve the lives of the American people, your constituents, and Arizonans, your constituents. They have every right to know where you stand on a policy issue. In fact, that's your only job. Your only job. What a sick joke. I'm very honest. I'm a straight shooter. I'm direct. I'm up front. And I will not answer your policy questions, even though I'm a politician and my whole job is policy. What a joke, man. What a joke. And then the host is, is no better. There's so there's no pushback throughout the whole thing. She asked the question, do you think it's a problem that Democrats overpromise? Is it a problem that Democrats overpromise? Well, you know what? They wouldn't be over promises if it wasn't for Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin and a gaggle of corrupt corporate idiot Democrats in the House. They wouldn't be over promises. They would just be the Democrats delivering on policies that poll at over 60%. So the only reason it's an over promise is because of Kirsten Cinema. Why don't you ask that question? hey, I have a list of policies here that all poll over 60%. They were all very popular in that $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. Why are you standing in the way of these things when it's clearly what the people want? It's clearly what Arizonans want. How's that for a question? Oh, you wouldn't ask that question. 
Um, another part, I just I, I felt my blood boiling as this part happened. Quote, I would never promise something to, something to the American people that I can't deliver. Kirsten Cinema ran for office uh, putting ads up about how she's going to lower drug prices. She's going to fight for lower drug prices for Arizonans. Then when this debate happened, she flipped her position against lowering drug prices. Now, at the same time, it, I'm sure it was just a coincidence, but she wound up taking over $900,000 from Big Pharma for her next election. So she ran on lower drug prices, gets in office, flips and is against lower drug prices, and at the same time took $900,000 from Big Pharma. Gee, I wonder what's going on there. I wonder if it's fair to call that legalized bribery and corruption. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a media that pointed out those basic facts to her face and said, hey, what do you have to say about this? Isn't this a clear example of legalized bribery and corruption? You ran on this and then you flipped your position. Now, by the way, since then, they worked out, I love this, they worked out a compromise on that issue where they said, all right, all right, maybe what we'll do is we'll negotiate for like 10 lower drug prices by like 2025 or something. So that's the compromise. So the Democrats are just flaunting their corruption for the world to see. We can't just be in favor of the correct policy that over 80% of Americans want. We need to split the difference between rank corruption and the right thing. I, what, what a sick, pathetic joke. And Kirsten Cinema gets away with saying to the national media and to the American people, oh, I would never promise something to the American people that I can't deliver. Well, you promised those lower drug prices, and you could deliver on it if you wanted, but you decided not to because you wanted to get paid. And Kirsten Cinema, when she leaves office, she's going to get a lot of money, y'all. She's going to get a lot of money. She's going to, because she's going to be corporate America's favorite senator. While portraying herself as this maverick, she actually is the quintessential example of a corrupt American politician upholding the system. You know, her approval rating among the people is absolutely plummeting, but her approval rating among the moneyed interests has never been higher. And you even have Republicans calling her, you know, wonderful and we're not even going to run anybody against her. I think that says it all. The thing that I don't understand, even at this late date, is whether or not she believes her own line of bullshit here. Because there is, there is a way she could rationalize how she's acting. She could actually convince herself, look, John McCain was given credit as a maverick because he always bucked his party lines, and he bucked his party lines. He was in the Republican Party. So every now and then, like, for example, he was in favor of campaign finance reform. They had the McCain-Feingold campaign finance reform. So that was a way in which he was a maverick because he was like, I'm not with the other Republicans. I want to do some form of campaign finance reform. He, of course, at the last minute saved Obamacare with the with the uh, thumbs-down vote, that was more out of personal spite to screw Trump than it was uh, policy-wise. But those are like a few examples of uh, John McCain, even though he's a Republican, saying on these issues I'm going to vote with the Democrats. And so he got this, he was viewed as this, this maverick, and at least the mainstream media loved him. Now, Kirsten Sinema is doing the reverse of that. Kirsten Sinema, she's a Democrat, but now on all the major issues, she's siding with the Republicans, and she's probably trying to get that you know, McCain uh, maverick label put on her. So does she actually believe, when she lays her head down on her pillow at night, does she actually believe, I'm different than the rest of the politicians? I actually think each issue through on its own merits, and I'm the new maverick. I'm with the Democrats, but I vote with the Republicans all the time. And so that, this makes me a hero. This makes me different. This makes me special. 
because she might actually believe that line of bullshit, but I find it hard to imagine that, particularly because she's selling out quite literally at every turn when it comes to all these policies. So she'll take money directly from corporations and then start voting in favor of the corporations. So it's hard for me to, to, to digest the thought that she doesn't know what that is, that she doesn't understand that she's a corrupt goon. So, uh, you know, I think I've come to the conclusion that was mentioned in cinema, they have to know they're frauds on some level. They have to. I mean, every argument they've used has been unmasked as total horseshit. Joe Manchin, for example, has been crying about, oh, my God, the debt and the deficit for Build Back Better. Oh, my God, we can't do any of the lads to the debt and the deficit. And then Joe Manchin voted yes on the traditional infrastructure bill, which adds over $200 billion to the deficit. So you can't say the deficit is my main gripe with Build Back Better, but also the bill I'm going to vote for, the traditional infrastructure bill, adds to the deficit, but I don't care because that doesn't make any sense. That proves that that's not actually your objection. And by the way, uh, I, I hate to say I told you so, but what did I warn you guys? I told you the potential options after the left caved and uh, de-linked the bills and said, okay, we'll vote on the traditional infrastructure bill and, uh, you know, we'll handle Build Back Better. We'll trust Biden. We'll get the votes for Build Back Better on his own. How'd that work out? What did I tell you guys? The options are they're going to make the bill worse. They're going to make the bill worse and then pass an even more watered-down version of it. That's possible. Or Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin are going to go, ha, ha, I'm actually not in favor of any bill, and so go screw yourself. And that seems like we're in permanent limbo right now, doesn't it? So either they're going to get an even worse bill and then try to get that through, or they're just going to, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin are just going to walk away from the table and be like, okay, we got what we wanted, the traditional infrastructure bill, we're done. So there you have it. Good job, Democrats. Good job, Jayapal. Good job, Rokana. How do you feel? Do you feel like losers and suckers? Because you should, because that's what you are. Okay. Here we go. So Matt Gates um, went on one of these stupid far-right uh, so-called news shows, and he gave us the most hilarious claim about vaccines that I think I've ever heard. Take a look. Well, still the best vaccine we've found is Mother Nature's vaccine. It's contracting the virus. That is what has provided the greatest protection, the most durable protection over the longest period of time. Getting covid is a strategy to get vaccinated, according to Matt Gates. It provides the best protection. You know what else it provides, Matt? The most deaths. So let me show you guys some numbers here, some official numbers. It's been 49 million cases in the U.S., 787,000 deaths in the U.S., almost 800,000 deaths from COVID. Worldwide, there's been 265 million cases of COVID. 5.25 million deaths from this virus. And by the way, just so you know, official counts are always underestimated. The real number for both the U.S. and the world is actually way higher, way higher, because we always lag way behind with our capacity to really know how many cases are out there. French study of over 22 million people finds vaccines cut severe COVID risk by 90%. 
I know, like, sometimes, sometimes I think there's no way somebody's making this claim that they're actually making because it would take quite literally two seconds of thought to debunk it. But no, he made the claim. Mother Nature's vaccine is the best vaccine. Now, uh, the reason why he's saying this is because there are some studies that indicate you get the most immunity if you get COVID and then you beat it because the way that the vaccines work is, so there's a number of different, there's the mRNA one, Pfizer, Moderna, and then there's the, um, the it's an adenovirus one. That's the Johnson & Johnson, that's AstraZeneca, which is the, the British vaccine. And the way that they work, the way that they differ is the uh, AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson take an adenovirus, which is a standard cold virus, and they tweak it to mimic the look of COVID. And so then when it gets inside your body, your body learns to... Uh, your immune system creates the antibodies to defeat something that is the shape of COVID, a virus that is the shape of COVID. Therefore, when you actually get COVID, you already have the immunity to it. Now, by the same technology, mRNA vaccines work a little bit different, but it's the same idea behind it, they're, except they're not tweaking a cold virus. It's, it's mRNA technology. So the way these vaccines work, since it's not exactly like the virus that's getting into your body, Um, it's not 100% effective, but as I just showed you, it's 90% effective against severe illness, hospitalization, and death. That's a very, very successful vaccine. It's just not foolproof. Well, obviously, if you get COVID and you defeat it, you literally defeated COVID, so you have better immunity, but the thing is, of course, you have to defeat COVID, and obviously, there's almost 800,000 Americans who did not defeat it, and it is deadly, whereas the vaccines, they're not deadly. Even if you grant all of the crazy cases uh, from VAERS, which is the adverse side effects, the adverse symptoms that come from the vaccine, even if you grant them all the things that are in VAERS, and I don't, by the way, I think a lot of that stuff is anti-vaxxers who are putting stuff in that's not even true. But even if you grant them that, you still have way worse effects from COVID, from COVID. People talk about, oh, my God, there's uh, some instances of heart issues from people who get the vaccines. Well, if there's even more heart issues from people who get COVID, COVID, it's sort of amazing how it works as a virus because it affects so many people differently and it affects all these different parts of the body. I mean, there's something called COVID toe. There's uh, a lot of 10% of people or over 10% of people who get COVID have conjunctivitis in their eye, which indicates that it came in through the eye. There was a study of rhesus monkeys that showed it came in through the eye. Some people have congestion issues. Some people have throat issues. Some people are totally asymptomatic. Some people literally struggle to breathe and can't breathe. Some people hallucinate. There's all these different ways that that it affects you. Even if you grant all of the negative side effects, the anecdotal claims from people, you should still get the vaccine because there's still way more worse effects from COVID-19. This isn't that hard to figure out. This really isn't. But he looks, he looks at, in a vacuum, he looks at the idea that you have perfect immunity after you get COVID and says, well, that's why it's the best vaccine. But if there's almost 800,000 deaths in America from that, is that really uh, an anti-COVID strategy to get covid I mean, how dumb do you have to be? And then, by the way, let's be clear, there's also been different variants. There was original COVID-19. There was uh, Delta variant. Now it's uh, Omicron variant. So you could, maybe you had original COVID. Maybe you didn't get Delta. And then maybe you can get Omicron. So you want to just keep getting a deadly virus and hope you survive it every time or hope you don't have severe complications from it every time? That's your, that's your strategy. If you get the vaccine, you have 90% protection from severe illness, hospitalization, and death. 
guys, this isn't an open question. We have answers here. And if you don't want the answers, it's because you don't want to know the answers. It's because people, and this is what happens, the, the, um, the thing that the anti-vaxxers always retreat to fundamentally is anecdotes. There's a difference between the micro picture and the macro picture. And by the way, for every anecdote that you give that's anti-vaccine, I can give you five that are pro-vaccine. So if you don't want to play the anecdote game, I don't want to play the anecdote game. But if you're going to play it, all right, we'll play it, and you'll be defeated in the anecdote game. But that's the thing. People always fall back on the anecdotes for the anti-vaccine stuff when I'm begging people, look at the macro data. That's what being scientific and intelligent is about. Look at the macro data to form your picture of the world. So by the way, I originally got the Johnson & Johnson um, vaccine, which unfortunately data has come out since that uh, since I got it, which indicates that it really is the, the worst of the three vaccines that we have here in the U.S. So efficacy after, I forget how many months, but efficacy dropped to 3% protection from getting COVID, but 70% protection from severe illness, hospitalization, and death. So now that is not the case with the mRNA vaccines. The, the Pfizer is, um, the protection stays very high with Pfizer, and with Moderna, it's even greater. It's even higher. It's, it, you know, there's actually a very clear vaccine hierarchy now, and Moderna is the best, Pfizer is the second in the U.S., and then Johnson & Johnson is the third. So I unfortunately had gotten the least effective vaccine. By the way, there are, there are benefits to it as well. So it's a one-shot vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson, not a two-shot vaccine. You were considered fully immunized after one. That's one of the main reasons why I wanted that one and got it. Also, it's easier to store. You don't need to uh, store it at, like, literally negative temperatures, which you do with the Pfizer and the Moderna. At, with the Johnson & Johnson, you could just store it in a regular refrigerator, and it lasts a long time. So there were benefits to it, and it really was for, you know, um, people in the country and uh, populations that wouldn't necessarily be guaranteed to show up for the second shot, like the homeless folks and whatnot. And so I ended up getting that Johnson & Johnson vaccine. I saw the new data. It says only 3% protection from getting COVID, but 70% protection from um, severe illness, hospitalization, and death. And so because I took that third-best vaccine, I did decide to get a, a booster and I ended up getting a Moderna booster two days ago now, and I'm happy to, to announce to you guys I've had basically zero symptoms. So none of the – because it is very common. If you get the vaccine, you might have, uh, you know, like a rash on your arm is one thing that a lot of people get, headaches, uh, fatigue, um, a, a low-grade fever. I had – the only side effect I had was just the sore arm, and, and that's it. You know, and even with the Johnson and Johnson last time, I had a little bit more than that. I had sore arm and then also like a headache 24 hours later for that lasted like maybe two or three hours and then it was done and you know, I was fine. But this, I didn't even get the headache. You know, with my booster, I just had, uh, all I had was a little bit of a sore arm and that's it. And so very simple thing. And now, you know, my protection shot up even more. And thankfully the stuff we're learning about the Omicron variant is that it's no more deadly than the original uh, COVID and Delta, um, but it just is more transmissible. But there hasn't been any death, at least yet, from Omicron, so um, that is some uh, potential good news. But now I, I have a, a little bit more protection. That makes me happy, and I certainly am not going to use the Matt Gates strategy. I'm just, I just get COVID. And now if I happen to get it, I'm overwhelmingly likely to just have the fucking sniffles, which makes me happy. Whereas if you're not vaccinated, well, buckle up. Buckle up, because... Many people will, will recover just fine, but some of them don't. Some of them have long-term symptoms. Some of them die. 
and uh, just don't want to take any chances. Don't want to roll the dice when the evidence is crystal clear about the fact that the vaccines work. So it's amazing that somebody can make that claim with a straight face this deep into the pandemic. Getting COVID is the best anti-COVID strategy. Mother Nature's vaccine is the best vaccine. No, I would say uh, any of the actual vaccines are a better vaccine than Mother's, Mother Nature's vaccine, which has killed over 5 million people in the world and almost 800,000 Americans. Okay. Next. Do one more, then we'll take a break. So President Trump uh, did an interview with Fox and Friends. He has this new book that he released. I think it's a bunch of pictures from when he was president. Um, It's called like Our Journey Together or something like that. And he was asked a question about basically his uh, biggest accomplishment in office or his best day in office. And he goes on to list what he thinks are his best accomplishments. Um, There's a lot of insight in this into how he thinks and his place among American presidents. Let's take a look, and then I'll break it down. What was, out of curiosity, the best day as president? Well, we had so much success. I mean, if you look at state sports, if you look at at right to try. Okay, we got the biggest tax cuts in the history of our country. That was a great day. We had a big serve. We got the biggest regulation cuts. That was a great, great number of days. Uh, we did right to try. So right to try, they've been trying to get it for 47 years, and I get it. That's where you can use medicine to take people that are terminally ill and allow them to see if this medicine works, and it's been incredibly successful. That wouldn't sound as big as some of the other things we've done, but that was a very big thing. Supreme Court justices, well, they're going to be making a ruling, a very important ruling soon. Uh, let's see how that works out. But I have three. You know, it's very unusual to have three, uh, and I got three, and they're very good. And let's see how that all works out, because right now they're going to be making one of their biggest decisions and putting in almost 300 judges throughout the United States. I mean, it's almost 30% of the judges in the country. So we had a lot of big moments, and I could go on. I could just go on and on. All right, so let me break this down for you. The least controversial thing he said there is right to try. Now, I'll give you both sides of of that argument and where they're coming from. So the side that's against right to try makes the claim, look, Big Pharma is totally unscrupulous. Uh, They'll they'll sell you snake oil. They'll give you soy powder and pretend like it cures some illness. And if you're terminally ill and you're laying in hospital bed, you're willing to try anything to survive. And there needs to be a regulatory structure and a body that can prove, or there's at least there's some evidence that something they're going to give you can help you. Um, Because people are most vulnerable when they're terminally ill, they're laying in a hospital bed, they'll do literally anything to to keep their life going. And so we need to know to one extent or another, and there needs to be oversight that can prove that, hey, what you're going to give this person is actually going to work and there aren't, you know, even more negative side effects that might kill them faster or whatever. So that's the argument against right to try, is that you need to have regulatory structures in place to show that big pharma and whoever's providing the medicine isn't ripping people off and isn't killing them. The argument for right to try 
is, look, any individual who's on their hospital bed, um, if you tell them you're terminally ill, you're going to die soon, but there's maybe a 3% chance that this thing we're going to give you might work, um, I think anybody in that position, including myself, would be like, I want to take it. If I'm all out of options and I'm terminally ill, and, but somebody comes along and says, look, I'm not making any promises here, but this is 3% chance this thing might work. It's in early clinical studies, and we don't know how well it works yet. But uh, in theory, there's a chance, and we'll say there's like a 3% chance you can make it. I'd be like, gimme, 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 yummy in my tummy. Give me a double dose of that shit. So it, it, is, it is actually a difficult one because both, there's, there's merit to both sides of that argument. You know, there is merit to the idea that there's a lot of unscrupulous people and, and corporations and entities that are out there that will even scam you when you're on your deathbed. There's merit to that. But then there's also merit to the fact that, shit, even if that is the case and the option is take nothing and die now or at least give yourself a little bit more uh, of a chance, everybody's going to take give me more of a chance. So he got through this right to try thing. I'm sure it was in some ways just a giveaway to big pharma. Um, but in principle, the idea of right to try is not something I'm really hardcore against because I could imagine myself in a situation like that where I'm like, yeah, I'll take fucking whatever. Um, so that's the least controversial and objectionable of the things he laid out for, you know, his biggest success in office is, or um, his best day in office was getting that through, he claims. Uh, notably, what's not on the list is what? The vaccine creation. He definitely should have put that on the list. He should have put that as number one. You know, that, that's uh, getting that mRNA vaccine approved as quickly as they did and having it be as successful as it's been. It's a huge, huge thing, man. And that you actually can give him credit unironically on that. Um, now, so here's where it all falls off a cliff. So one of the things he cites is the 2017 tax cut bill. Look, 83% of the benefits of that bill go to the top 1%. There was just an analysis that came out, oh, it cut taxes for the middle class too. Yeah, but read the bill. The, the tax cuts for the working class are temporary. The tax cuts for the rich and corporations are permanent. What a trash analysis. We've looked at the bill within the first uh, you know, five-year span here, and turns out the working class got a tax cut. Yeah, the whole point was do temporary tax cuts for the working class so you can jam through the permanent tax cuts for corporations and billionaires and also incentivize outsourcing. This is a horrible bill. It was the Bush tax cuts on steroids. He's bragging about this as his biggest success. Well, guess what, Don? That means you're just a standard establishment Republican. You're not a populist. You're a fake populist. You're just like George W. Bush. You're just like Dick Cheney. You're just like Ronald Reagan. And they were terrible for working people. So to brag about that is just obscene. Then he gets even worse. He's bragging about regulation cuts. Regulation cuts? Guys, there were clean air and clean water rules that were axed under Donald Trump. Protections against... Um, coal pollution that were axed under Donald Trump. He destroyed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which had returned billions of dollars to defrauded Americans. It actually looked after average Americans and stood up to the big uh, financial companies. And then he comes in and he absolutely destroys that agency. And if anything, now reverses what they do. And they now look out more for the financial uh, industries industry than they do for working people. So he destroyed that. He also very famously, he took a million dollars for his inauguration from the predatory payday loan industry. Then as soon as he gets into office, he axes uh, some cases that were against them from the previous administration, the Obama administration. He drops all the, the, uh, the lawsuits into, into them and also drops the new regulations that were about to go into place on the predatory payday loan industry. So it's just a total cuck to industry, and he's bragging about cutting red tape and doing deregulation. That was horrible for working people. Um, and then finally, look, this is the big... The big one, 
He goes, we got three Supreme Court justices and nearly 300 judges in around the country, almost 30% of the judges in around the country. In other words, he's saying, this is going to make my legacy and my ideology last a really long time. And on that front, he's right. And he even says, well, there's a big case coming up soon, and they're going to decide on that. But I got three in there. And so, you know, that's very rare that that happens, and maybe they'll do a little something-something in that big case. He's talking about Roe versus Wade. I don't know how many of you saw this news within the last week, but uh, there's, a, there's a huge indication that Roe v. Wade is going, going, gonski, because there were questions that were being asked by Judge Amy Coney Island Barrett and Judge Gorsuch, and in this case, and it was very clear to all the observers, the journalists who were watching the case, like, they're, they're very hostile questions about Roe versus Wade, which leads them to believe that you're going to have the votes to effectively overturn Roe versus Wade. Now, when you overturn Roe versus Wade, about half the, con- the, the states in the country could either outright ban abortion or severely restrict it to the point where it's almost totally banned. That would be a disaster. And Trump is bragging about that. Trump is bragging about that. But look, we shouldn't be surprised. This is a guy who said famously in 2016 in an interview with Chris Matthews that there should be some form of punishment for a woman who gets an abortion. Even other anti, uh, anti-abortion cranks never said that women should get punished for it, but he actually said that women should potentially get punished for it. So he's bragging that he got the, the three Supreme Court justices on there and that now they might actually kill Roe versus Wade. Standard establishment Republican stuff. Don't ever get it twisted. That's exactly who he is. That's exactly what he is, and he's making it super clear here. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, I got a lot more for you, including more on Trump. He says something about COVID that's hilarious. And uh, I got a little message from us Bernie supporters to the Biden stands and the Democratic Party. And it's a little I told you so. So stay right there. We'll be right back.
son of a bitch. All right, y'all. Welcome back to the show. Still got plenty of stuff to get to. Here we go. More Trump. President Trump did an interview with Fox and Friends, and uh, he is talking about this new book he's selling, which is like a picture book from when he was president. Um, He made a claim about COVID here that is beyond absurd. Mr. President, what would you do to fix the supply chain crisis? Well, first of all, it would have never happened. Nobody ever mentioned those words, supply chains. They would never brought up. We, we had perfect supply chains. We had an economy that was going like we had the greatest economy in history. We then had the China virus. We fixed it. We did a great job with it. And with, between not only that, the ventilators, all of the different things that, that we did, we had the China virus. We fixed it. You fixed COVID-19. You fixed it. You fixed COVID-19. That's weird. I was under the impression we're still living with it now. I was under the impression it never went away since it started. There's been waves. There's definitely been waves. But you didn't fix Dickie McGee's... Come on, man. Come on, dog. Come on. Like, this is... This is a man with verbal diarrhea. Like, he'll just start talking and start saying shit, and there doesn't have to be any connection in his mind to that which is true. Like, he's not trying... As he talks, he's not trying to say accurate things. He's trying to be his own biggest cheerleader. Now, I know a lot of you listening to this will be like, well, that's obvious. Yeah, but it's just amazing to see it in real time. Look at that stream of consciousness verbal diarrhea. We fixed it. We fixed the virus. Oh, did you? Did you really? Now, look, I'll give him credit for fast-tracking that vaccine, and it works, and it's great. Good. Hey, man, do a victory lap over that for sure. You can't say you fixed the virus. You did not fix the virus. And, by the way, and it is totally untrue about Uh, that we didn't have a supply chain crisis starting under Trump. It absolutely started under Trump. And you got to understand, so so we've looked at this uh, a bunch of different ways, and inflation, unfortunately, is being blamed by many people on the big government spending. So namely the COVID rescue packages, some of them happened under Trump. Uh, A big one happened under Biden. Um, And people, a, a lot of, the gut reaction from a lot of people is like, well, that must be the thing that's leading to inflation. It absolutely, positively, 100% is not the thing that's leading to inflation. Every economist and every expert I've talked to makes it crystal clear this has everything to do with the supply chain. So, and, you know, I, I gave you guys a detailed breakdown of that uh, in the segment we did rebutting Tulsi Gabbard, who made the claim that the big spending is, is the problem here. No, it turns out, um, you know, because of COVID, there was to one extent or another, a lockdown originally in this country. And um, the economy had some colossal, monumental shifts. So people stopped going out, no more restaurants, movie theaters, shopping in person. Everything became online shopping. And you had the, um, the supply chains had so much stress on them because there was so much PPE that had to ship uh, around the world and the ports got clogged. And then add on top of that all the home shopping and online shopping that people are doing, that puts even more stress on the supply chain. And so you just have this colossal backup. And so 
demand shot up and supply also dropped because, again, in some countries had full lockdowns and people just weren't working. And so um, when, when demand shoots up and supply drops, it, that, it's a recipe for that. So, and, of course, that happened under Trump as well. It's been talked about more under the Biden administration uh, because the problem's been dragging out and getting worse. But the idea that, like, well, we did everything right, there was, nobody even said supply chain under my administration, totally bonkers. But not nearly as bonkers as the second thing he said. We fixed it. We fixed the China virus. Imagine believing that and saying, well, he, I don't even know if he believes it. Or I don't even know if belief even factors into the equation for this guy when he talks. I really just think it's pure stream of consciousness. I'm going to be my own biggest cheerleader. And, guys, this is quintessential pathological liar stuff here is that there is no, like when you talk and, and when I talk, we try to make sure that you're, you're navigating the minefield and staying away from saying things that are untrue and steer towards saying things that are true. But when this guy talks, he just tap dances his way through the minefield, doesn't care if it's true or false. It's just bravado and bluster and his own biggest cheerleader. And so that's where you get absurd things like this. By the way, was there any pushback over that? No. There's another part of the interview which is hilarious where – um, basically, all three hosts try to get Trump to admit that being on social media was a bad idea. That, hey, man, when you were tweeting, everybody fucking hated you. Now you're kicked off Twitter. Nobody sees what you're saying on a daily basis anymore. And now your approval rating is going up. Don't you think maybe it would be a good idea to stay off Twitter, even if you run again and you're allowed back on, which I don't even think he's going to be allowed back on. But if you run again and you're allowed back on, shouldn't you stay off Twitter? Because look at your approval rating now. It's higher than it was before. And Trump's basically like, no, <laughs> no, I, I'm gonna, I want to do it. That's effectively his answer, which is hilarious. But it's funny that the one area where the Fox people pushed him is like, stay off Twitter. (laughs) And that's it. But they didn't push back on, we fixed it. We fixed the China virus. You fixed it. Great. Good to know. I'll let everybody in America know that uh, apparently, guys, it's good. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Uh, It's been defeated. Trump defeated it. Everything that's happened since then is just uh, all in our imagination. And... Imagine, like, imagine he wins again, which is a very, I think he's the favorite to win again in 2024. Um, what are you going to say then? He'll be back in power. He could do more of his own COVID policies. And my guess is um, it won't improve because his policies were shitty early on. You know, there was a, oh, this was great. There was an article, I forgot about this until right this second. There was an article that came out about three weeks ago. There's this. A government agency, which was specifically to address the supply chain crisis, they were allocated something between like $100 million and $400 million, something in that, in that range. And um, they spent basically none of the money trying to fix the supply chain. This was under Trump. And come to find out, I think Jared Kushner was in charge of it, and they gave the contract to one of Jared Kushner's friends, and so none of the money was spent on actually fixing the, the supply chain. Incredible. So in other words, the opposite of what Trump is saying is true about the supply chain. We never had a problem. No, there was a problem. And then you, there was an agency that was supposed to fix it, and none of the money went to fixing it. That's his administration in a nutshell. All right, next. Here we go. There's some new polling that just came out um, in a key demographic for Democrats, namely 
young folks. Whenever Democrats win national elections, it's because there's a surge of young voters. That's what happened with uh, Barack Obama twice. And um, the lack of enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton sort of did her in. Uh, Biden was a unique case because the anti-Trump fervor was so strong that there were a lot of, uh, there's a lot of movement in the suburbs away from Republicans and towards Democrats in 2020 uh, for Biden. But generally speaking, the, the younger demographic is the bread and butter of the Democratic Party. I mean, sort of the backbone of the Democratic Party, just like African-American voters. Um, and this poll really says something. Take a look. Among 18 to 29-year-olds, this is, this is the net favorability of the following. Bernie Sanders, plus 12. This was taken in November. Biden, plus 2. Harris, supposed to be the heir apparent, minus 3. Pelosi, minus 22. Trump minus 33. Now, listen, it's a little bit of a different scenario for the Republicans because younger folks were never their bread and butter. So this is not their wheelhouse, okay? But for Democrats, it is their wheelhouse. Bernie plus 12, Biden plus 2, Harris minus 3. Now, I I can't stress this point enough. This is in November. So that means we're... Biden has been in power for a while, and you have all, all the dirty, backwards, disgusting, grotesque negotiations going on over Build Back Better. Bernie fighting every step of the way behind the scenes, was able to get us the compromise of the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, which was a phenomenally uh, popular piece of legislation when you go issue for issue. People love the stuff that's in there. Even Republicans love the stuff that was in there when they were asked issue for issue. Um, And Bernie is a rare politician in this sense. Usually, the more people see of him, the more people like him. That's very rare for a politician. Usually, the more they see you, the more they hate you, because they see how vacuous and vapid you are and how you really believe in nothing, and it's all posturing and for self-aggrandizement. Bernie's got nothing to do with that. Now, I have my criticisms of Bernie. I think he's a little bit naive about how power works. I think oftentimes he's too quick to throw his lot in and um, with the Democratic Party and um, sort of go along to get along in many ways. I don't think he has that killer instinct and knows how to fight and knows how to twist arms. But having said that, there's no doubt his heart is in the right place. He means well, and he really wants these policies, and he's doing everything he can from his perspective to get it implemented behind the scenes. Now, so people see what's going on with that Build Back Better negotiation. They know who's representing their interests, Bernie, and they know everybody else is basically a snake. So even after Biden's been in office for a while, Bernie's been in the public eye because he's been front and center in these negotiations, his approval rating is still plus 12 over water. Every time they poll who's the most liked senator in the country, you know who wins that poll? Bernie Sanders. So it's not just young people. It's not just young people. It's the rest of the country, too. And there's even a lot of people who might self-describe as moderate or, or describe themselves as conservative who say, look, I may not agree with the guy on a bunch of things. The fact of the matter is, I think he's honest, and I think he's authentic. That's Bernie. We told you so. We warned you. How clear were Bernie supporters from the beginning? Look, he actually is the safer bet against Trump. It's not not Biden who's the safer bet against Trump. Because we ran, in 2016, we ran the experiment. Hillary was the safe option, right? She She had higher name recognition. She was more established. And went with her. She ended up losing to Trump. 
Biden, Biden's main argument was like, hey, you can't take any risks here. I'm the safe option against Trump. I have more electability. You know what? He did win the election. But now look what's happening since he's been in office. It's been a steady decline the entire time. He was riding high with the first COVID rescue package and the $1,400 checks. And then ever since then, it's been plummeting. Now he's at 38%. There's one poll that had him at 36% approval rating. We warned you as Bernie supporters. Do you think if Bernie Sanders was president right this second, his approval rating would be 36%? There's not a single American or even a single Biden supporter who can say, yeah, I think Bernie's approval rating would be 36% if he was in power right now. You know how I know that's not true? Because Bernie Sanders, would have, on executive orders alone, his approval rating would be like 45% or higher. On, on executive orders alone, and I'm being very conservative by saying 45%, because it, it was clear he was going to legalize marijuana. He was going to pardon uh, nonviolent drug offenders. He was going to take some sort of action on student loan debt. I mean, he could have totally eliminated it, but even if Bernie was somehow talked talk out of that behind the scenes from Democratic staffers, he was going to at least do like $50,000 worth of student loan debt elimination just through executive order. He was going to give more people health care using executive orders, which he can do, he has the authority to do, as we've covered before, and David Dane wrote a a great article on that. Just through the power of executive orders, he was going to do more. Even if you say he's totally stonewalled when it comes to Congress, just through executive orders, he would have done more, and his approval rating would be higher, and the Democrats would be looking up for the midterms. We'd be talking about maybe Democrats picking up more seats in the midterms. We told you so. You don't fight fake populism on the right with milquetoast neoliberalism on the Democratic side. Because, guys, it was milquetoast neoliberalism which led to the rise of the fake populist right. You're going back to the problem that gave us Trump in the first place. And so I don't know how much more clearly I could say I told you so, and we told you so, but we fucking told you so. There was a warning from the Bernie left. Now, a lot of uh, Bernie supporters early on, myself included, thought there's no way Biden can even beat Trump. Then we had the pandemic, and then I flipped my prediction as we got closer to the election, and I was like, I think Biden can win this thing. In fact, I thought he would win 360 or something electoral votes on the day of the election. Turns out he won just over 300, so he underperformed. But he won, and then now, ever since he's been in office, the exact thing that we warned you would happen is exactly what's happening. The exact thing that we said would come to pass is coming to pass. This is what happens when you believe in nothing. What does Joe Biden stand for? What does he, what does he believe in? What does Joe Biden believe in? I'll tell you what. His, his, uh, the thing that I think is most motivating him is maybe just I want to one-up Obama because he felt slighted by them. He felt like they all looked down on him, and they did, the Obama administration. He wants to one-up Obama, and he also still believes in this cult of bipartisanship for the sake of bipartisanship and going along to get along and changing the the way Washington works in the sense that we all come together. An old school politician, backslapping politician. So in other words, the thing that's motivating him most is not policy, is not improving the lives of the American people, is not fixing the country, is not some commitment to New Deal liberalism. That's not what's driving him. That is the thing that's driving Bernie. And having that in you would have been enough in and of itself to keep his approval rating 45% or higher, and we'd be talking about Democrats in the midterms maybe picking up more seats. 
We warned you. We warned you. And the most frustrating part of it all is that this is a vicious cycle and it's an abusive cycle. And now what will happen is when Democrats get wiped out, who's going to be blamed? The left. Which you think, like, how is that even possible? Oh, believe me, they'll find a way. They'll say, well, the problem was that with the reconciliation bill, it was too aggressive in the first place and too far-reaching in the first place, and that turned off voters. Even though the reality is it wasn't aggressive enough, it wasn't far-reaching enough, it didn't get any of the shit through. If you actually got it through, then you wouldn't have gotten wiped out in the midterms. They'll find a way. They always do. It's always the left's fault. It's always the left's fault. So just wait for it. It's coming. But look, I'm, tell- I'm doing the I told you so beforehand. I'm doing the I told you so right now. Got Joe Biden at 38% or 36% approval rating. Mayor P at 37. Kamala Harris at 28. And these are the people that they're now writing articles saying, it'll be a great ticket to have Kamala and Pete on it. Yes. On what planet? Only among you and your fellow elite media ghouls. You're the only people in the country who like Mayor Pete and Kamala Harris. On what planet? They are so disconnected from reality, they can't even see straight. Well, we are not disconnected from reality. We warned you every step of the way exactly what happened, what would happen, and now it's happening. And Democrats have nobody to blame but themselves. Nobody. Because even in this terrible climate for Democrats, terrible climate for Democrats, where all of them are plummeting approval ratings, Bernie Sanders still has a plus 12 approval rating with young folks, and I'm sure if they took another poll, he'd be the most liked senator in the country yet again. Now, if that guy was president, it would be a totally different story. So don't say we didn't warn you. We warned you a million times, and you didn't fucking listen. And then when the shit hits the fan again, we know we'll be blamed. And you'll be just as wrong that time as you were the last five times. Okay. Next. So President Biden is um, bringing back Trump's harshest immigration policies. Take a look at this. Breaking, the Biden administration announced it's further extending the Trump era program known as Title 42 that expels people seeking asylum without due process. The Title 42 program is illegal and cruel. Just yesterday, the administration blamed a court order for its restarting of another Trump era policy known as Remain in Mexico that causes many of the same harms. With Title 42, there's no court order to blame. All right, so let me break this down for you. Um, The Remain in Mexico thing, I guess they're accurately blaming a court ruling that says that needs to remain in place. But with Title 42, if anything, it's the opposite. So what I mean by that is the courts have ruled that it is unconstitutional and you can't implement it in the way it's been implemented, where the idea is, hey, we have a pandemic And so for health and safety reasons, um, we're just going to instantly expel people, even ones who are seeking asylum. So this isn't even just a claim of undocumented immigration. This is people who have a claim to asylum, and there needs to be a process to determine whether or not that's a fair claim that they're making. They say, skip the process, you're gone-ski, and the reason why you're gone is because there's a health crisis. We have the COVID pandemic, and so we're not going to take the risk, and so you're just going to be sent out, even if you're making a claim of asylum that might even be legitimate. We don't know if it's legitimate or illegitimate. We're not going to have a process. We're just going to kick you out immediately. So this is, these are two of Trump's harshest immigration policies, and they're back in place. One of them you can blame the court. The other one you cannot blame the court. 
And it's even more nefarious than that, because what's the Biden administration doing? I think their argument from a legal perspective is, hey, look, you said we couldn't do Title 42 because of the original, uh, original COVID-19 and then Delta. You said we can't do it. Well, now we have the Omicron virus. That's different than Delta and original COVID-19. So now we're doing a new order where we're doing Title 42 under the guise of this new variant. So they're just going to kick people out immediately, even if they're seeking asylum, even if they have a legitimate claim to asylum, because they basically want to, I think what they're trying to do is just lighten their headache for themselves, because there is a surge at the border. And so they just out of sight, out of mind type stuff, and they just want want to make it orderly and clean as quickly as possible. And if that means doing right-wing policies, so be it. Now, there's a lot of stuff to, to break down in this. First of all, um, I think it's still unconstitutional and illegal, and a court may rule that, that doing Title 42 the way they're doing it is unconstitutional and illegal. We'll have to wait and see on that. Um, but also, look, Biden himself is a colossal hypocrite, because regardless of what you think of the policy, he ran on the opposite. He ran on having a much more humanitarian and altruistic approach to immigration. Now, Biden is no lefty on immigration, but he's supposed to be, in theory, at least moderate on immigration or center-left on immigration. And this is him just embracing a right-wing approach on immigration. Um, So he's a colossal hypocrite, and he's a liar, because he said he was going to do the opposite, and he's not. He's cracking down, in this instance, exactly like Donald Trump. Um, But the other thing is, I'm waiting for the right to give Biden credit for this. See, there's there's something that I noticed about the left, myself included in this. When I thought Donald Trump did something good, like fast-track the mRNA vaccines, I gave him credit. When I thought Trump did something good with axing TPP when he did that, I gave him credit. Because I don't care about partisan stupidity. I care about policy and what's actually being done. I have no problem giving credit where credit is due. Um, The right doesn't do that. And so here's Biden doing Trump-era policies that the right loved it when Trump did it. And now Biden's doing those exact same policies. And I guarantee you, you will see no segment on Fox News, Newsmax, or American News Network saying credit to Joe Biden for doing what we think is the right thing here, being tough on immigration, immediately uh, deporting people, even if they have a legitimate claim to asylum, putting back the Remain in Mexico policy. Credit him on these things. They're not going to do it because they're not intellectually honest. And they're not policy-focused first and foremost. There's partisan tribalism is at the heart of what they do more than anything else. So uh, really, in this conversation, I think the left has the most accurate claim because they would say Biden ran on cleaning up Trump's immigration mess and not being a a right-wing hardliner, and he lied, and he's a hypocrite, and he flipped his position, and now he's doing exactly what Trump did. And so... Criticizing him from the left on this is, is legitimate. Now, by the way, as you guys know, I always call myself a, a moderate on the issue of immigration. I'm in favor of having a process and having a system, but it needs to be fair, just, altruistic. It needs to coincide with U.S. law and international law. And the fact of the matter is, this ain't no moderate approach on immigration. This is hard right shit. And it's, I think it's illegal. I think it's unconstitutional. I think it's unfair. I think it, uh, it rips the mask off of a country that pretends to care about human rights and justice and Uh, Clearly we don't. Clearly we don't. Because people have a right to seek asylum, and we're not even hearing the claims. You're just immediately kicking them out. So I think even from a a moderate center-left 
position on immigration, which is where I would put myself, there's so much to criticize, even just from that perspective. Biden's being way too hardline here, and he just wants to do an out-of-sight, out-of-mind approach. And um, this is something the right should celebrate because they're hardline assholes on this issue, but they're not going to do that. They're still going to attack him anyway. So um, it's a terrible policy, and from a political perspective, um, ain't no credit coming from the right, and obviously the left is going to be dead set against this because at least they're more honest and care about the policy of it, and they know it's BS. And so this is yet another way in which Biden is uh, becoming his own worst enemy. And that 36%, 38% approval rating appears totally legitimate and like he earned it here. All right, next. This is a really interesting story. There was an opinion piece in uh, the Washington Post, which I found very interesting. Now, I don't agree with a lot of the framing in the opinion piece. I think it's, um, it's not accurate. But in this article, artificial intelligence is used from Forge.ai. It's a data analytics unit of the information company Fiscal Note. And uh, what they did is, using artificial intelligence, they combed through more than 200,000 articles, tens of millions of words, from 65 news websites, including newspapers, network and cable news, political publications, news wires, and more, and they measured how Trump and Biden are treated by the media. So the article itself in the Washington Post basically makes the claim that Biden is treated just as bad or worse um, than Trump was by the media. But I can show you the chart so you can see what AI actually said, and that's not a totally fair claim But either way, what the artificial intelligence found is fascinating. So let's take a look, and I'll break it down for you. News coverage of each president. This is from artificial intelligence, um, combing through all the words and 200,000 articles and cable news segments and everything. This is how the media treated Biden versus Trump. So early on, you can see, had positive coverage. It says in the first few months of his presidency, it's not just that. Also, when the media thought it wanted to destroy Bernie Sanders' campaign, they went all in on making Biden amazing and pretending like he's great, and the only person who could beat Trump. So he had phenomenal positive coverage, and there's no way uh, uh, Biden would have won the presidency without the media going all in on his side and trying to destroy Bernie. Uh, Really just doing hatchet job after hatchet job and smear job after smear job on Bernie Sanders and propping up Biden at a time where he needed that. So the media largely made Biden president, okay? Now, you can make the same claim for Trump, but they gave him billions of dollars of free media. Now, most of that media was negative, but I think... Since the way they covered Trump negatively, it was so unhinged that it actually, there was a backlash effect and people started to like Trump more because they just hated the media more than Trump. And so even though Trump got negative coverage all along, in a weird way, it sort of helped him early on. Okay. So there you see early on, Biden had very positive coverage. Um, And then you see it takes a colossal dip there and it never really recovers. I mean, it recovers a touch but not really. So early on, Biden had the honeymoon phase, and then there was this giant, um, you know, downturn in the coverage of, of Biden, and he goes below Trump territory for a little bit, then it sort of evens out a touch. So I think the more accurate way of talking about this is Biden had very positive coverage in the campaign uh, when it was only him and Bernie left. Then he had very positive coverage early on in his time in office because He's not Trump, and obviously the media hates Trump. And then uh, it, it falls off a cliff. Now, 
what you uh, attribute that to is a separate question. One of the big things, of course, is when he pulled out of Afghanistan. So in other words, Biden implemented a policy that the overwhelming majority of the American people wanted, and the media hammered him over it. The media portrayed him as a buffoon, as an idiot, as unhinged, as aiding the Taliban. And they made it seem like, what, there was a way to pull out of Afghanistan where it wasn't going to be chaos and where the Taliban wasn't going uh, to take over? I got news for you guys. That's bullshit. No matter when you left, it was going to go to shit. And so the old saying is rip off the Band-Aid quickly. We should have ripped off the Band-Aid quickly. And we should have done it way earlier. Shit, probably should have never went in there. I understand if you go specifically after Osama bin Laden, but any sort of ground invasion is psychotic. And we did that. We stayed there for 20 years and we pulled out. And the media was implying, oh, my God, you shouldn't have pulled out or you shouldn't have put out the way you did. You should have pulled out and somehow everything should have stayed wonderful over there, even though it wasn't wonderful to begin with. And that is nonsense because it's not possible. So ultimately, the claim of the media, the implication was you should have just kicked the can down the road and stayed there. That is not what Americans wanted, but they started to portray Biden as a buffoon for doing the right thing, for doing the right thing. And by the way, same thing happened under Trump. When Trump bombed Syria, that was when he got his most positive coverage from the media. Are you sensing a a trend here with the media? There's a problem with our media. It's an institutional problem with our media, and they really are representing the Pentagon, the CIA, the deep state, the military industrial complex, because they're cheering bombings, even from an unhinged lunatic like Donald Trump, and they're slamming the idea of pulling out of war, which Biden did in Afghanistan. So media is a huge problem here, but Biden got wonderful coverage early on to defeat Bernie. The media wanted Bernie down. He got wonderful coverage early on. He got pretty good coverage with the first COVID relief uh, package where people got $1,400 checks. And then after that, fell off a cliff with, Af- fell off a cliff with Afghanistan and, uh, you know, the Build Back Better negotiations. Every other day, something positive was stripped out. And just reporting that stuff factually would, you know, sort of prove Biden is uh, doing a terrible job. And so now his, the media coverage is roughly akin to what it was with Donald Trump. Um, I don't think it's as negative in the words they use and in their personal feelings towards him, but it certainly ain't positive. So that's the main takeaway. Look, with Trump, the reason they hated Trump was not because of his policies, which were establishment policies, which in theory they love. The reason they hated Trump is all cultural. The media is packed full of cultural elites, and Trump is unhinged, unfiltered, and He's a barbarian, and so he says things you're not allowed to say, and sometimes he says grotesque things. Other times he says things that happen to be true, but also the media doesn't like those things. And so it's more of a cultural hatred of Trump more than anything else. And with Biden, it was a hatred of pulling out of Afghanistan, and uh, it's now probably the negative coverage now just stems from the fact that He's hiding, and his brain doesn't work, and the Democrats aren't doing anything for the American people. So anyway, that's your breakdown. The AI stuff is very interesting. Um, my guess is it'll stay roughly the same. As, it, as we gear up towards an election cycle, if Biden can somehow run in 2024, they'll start giving him more positive coverage again, especially if his opponent is Trump. But at least for now, um, it, they're probably going to stay roughly in the same ballpark, and that's 
of course, negative coverage for Trump whenever he's talked about, and probably net negative coverage for Biden, too. Okay. All right, let me take a quick little break, and then when we come back, I'm going to give you uh, an update on the Iran talks, and then Democrats getting pummeled in new polls, and then here's a stunning story. Modern-day slavery was unearthed in Georgia. So stay right there, guys. This will be a quick break. We'll be right back. y'all we are back we are back let's keep it going talk about uh, US and how they're acting with Iran so I want to go ahead and give you an update on the uh, new Iran talks now the fact that we're even having Iran talks it's a little absurd because the whole thing is a farce I'm going to explain to you 
how the talks with Iran have been a farce and the U.S. has been stunningly dishonest. But first, let me give you the update, and then we'll dive into that. Uh, So here we go from Yahoo News. The United States hit out at Iran on Friday, saying nuclear talks between the Islamic Republic and world powers have stalled because Tehran does not seem to be serious about returning to the table. Hilarious that they say that. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony uh, Blinken warned that Washington would not let its adversary prolong talks while continuing to advance its nuclear ambitions and would pursue other options if diplomacy failed. The rebuke came as diplomats paused a seventh round of international talks aimed at reviving the 2015 Iran nuclear deal with U.S. and European participants voicing concern after five days of negotiation. Quote, what we've seen in the last couple of days is that Iran right now does not seem to be serious about doing what's necessary to return to compliance, which is why we ended this round of talks in Vienna, Blinken told a virtual conference of world leaders. But the window is very, very tight because what is not acceptable and what we will not allow to happen is for Iran to try to drag out this process while continuing to move forward inexorably in building up its program. All right, so let me break this down for you guys. There's a lot there. And clearly the tone from the U.S. is, It's Iran's fault. Blame Iran, blame Iran, blame Iran. They're not serious, whereas we, on the other hand, are very serious. Okay. So, uh, in 2015, they negotiated this uh, nuclear agreement with Iran. What were the terms of that agreement? It's very simple. The idea is the the IAEA, which is the International Atomic Energy Agency, they get to go into Iran and basically uh, keep an eye on their nuclear program, their nuclear system. Now, you say, well, hold on now. Why do they even have a nuclear program or or a nuclear system? Well, under international law, every country is allowed to enrich uranium, namely for power for their power grid, for their people, uh, and also for any sort of scientific research that they might want to do. So they have a right under international law to do that. So the deal was uh, the IAEA would go in and um, monitor and regulate the Iranian nuclear program, and they're they're only allowed to enrich up to a certain point. It's it's the the point before – Uh, you can actually make weapons with the nuclear technology. And in return for the international community basically keeping Iran in check with their nuclear program, the U.S. would lift our sanctions on Iran. And we've had crippling sanctions on Iran, I think, ever since the 1979 revolution. So what happened back then? We we need to give you this context in order to understand exactly what's going on today. So in 1979, there was an Islamic revolution in Iran. The Islamic revolution came as a result of a dictator, the Shah, had been in power in Iran for uh, a long time. And the Shah, on top of secularizing and modernizing culturally Iran, uh, what he also did was basically let the U.S. and the U.K. almost steal uh, gas from Iran. They had, we had very cheap uh, oil and gas coming out of Iran because of our deal with the Shah. The Shah was basically a puppet dictator uh, for the West, And what happened was one of the few places where the people of Iran could organize against what they viewed as a repressive government and a government that's the puppet of the West uh, was mosques. Mosques were one of the only places that weren't monitored regularly by the Shah. Uh, And so that's why you had this Islamic revolution come out as a result of it in 1979. And, of course, culturally, Iran moved in a very conservative direction. Um, They're, of course... Shia in Iran, and so you have this effectively like a Shia theocracy that was set up, and you have the Revolutionary Guard running the country. And so it was in part uh, conservative culturally was the revolution, so women had to now cover themselves and whatnot, but also um, now economically they were trying to sever ties with the West, not give the West cheap oil anymore, not be a puppet of the West, and sort of develop on their own. And of course the U.S. in response to that said, you're not playing ball with us, therefore sanction the shit out of them. So now fast forward all the way 
2015, um, it was John Kerry and Barack Obama and the, the Obama administration made this deal. And by the way, it was a good deal. I, I think that was one of the best things that Obama did. Hey, we're going to lift the sanctions on you and you can trade with the world and your economy will flourish, but we just need to make sure you're never going to create uh, you know, a nuclear weapon and that's why the IAEA will check. Now, what happened? First of all, the U.S. violated that deal very early on. We didn't lift all the sanctions. We kept some of the sanctions in place. But then also, Congress voted at one point to add more sanctions onto Iran when the only portion of the U.S. deal that we had to uphold was don't sanction Iran. So we violated the deal. Then under, uh, now they still stayed in compliance even when we first violated the deal. It's amazing. Now this was under Hassan Rouhani, the more moderate president. Then, uh, so now there was an election recently. Rouhani's out. Now you have Raisi as president. Raisi's a hardliner. Now, we warned you when this happened. When Donald Trump fully pulled out of the Iran agreement, fully pulled out of it, and they have all these conspiracy theories on the right, they were giving them, uh, you know, cash. They, they, we were giving them cash off of airplanes, this, uh, this repressive dictatorship. No, we're giving them back their own money that we had stolen from them going all the way back to 1979. It's their money. It's their money. Um, so... Trump gets in there, pulls out of the agreement, and we warned you, you know what's going to happen now? The moderates are going to get wiped out because they look stupid for, de- for making a deal with the West and trusting the West at all to uphold our end of the bargain, and now the hardliners are going to win. So because we're t- so tough on Iran by violating our agreement, you made it so that now you have hardliners in power in Iran who are much less likely to ever play ball with the West and who can easily in turn raise tensions along- with Israel and the United States and say, fuck off, we're, you know, we're going to go it alone because we don't trust you. So Trump pulls out of the agreement. In comes Joe Biden. Now, Joe Biden, when he's running for president, what does he say? We're going get to get back into the Iranian agreement. Wonderful. That's the answer. If you have a, a, a U.S. government that comes into power and they say, look, our bad, the previous guy was an anomaly. He shreds, shreds these international agreements, and our word as the world's sole superpower is only as good as us abiding by our agreements. Therefore, like Paris Climate Agreement, we're hopping back in that. Hooray. It's crazy that this guy ever took us out of it. That's what Trump did. Um, this Iranian nuclear agreement, we're going to hop back in. And by the way, we, you know, if you're going to get back in it, you, the other thing you should say is we apologize. The last guy was crazy. We're going to uphold our agreement. And um, our bad, even for violating it early on, let's stick by it to the letter now. And we assure you there won't be any further problems. Biden runs on getting back in the agreement. Then he gets in office. He doesn't get back in the agreement. He doesn't get back in the agreement. What? It was the easiest layup for the Biden administration. He didn't get back in the agreement. So he continues Trump's policies on it. Now we're having talks to see if we can revive the agreement. And part of our condition for the talks is, okay, Iran, now you go back to abiding by the agreement, and we're not going to do it unless you show us that you're abiding by it again, and then maybe we'll jump in and, and uphold our bargain and lift some of the sanctions. What? So we violated the, the agreement. Then we pulled out of the agreement. Now we say as part of our new round of talks, all right, you get back in the agreement and we're not going to do it yet. Why would they get back in the agreement? Why would they do it? They would be insane not to enrich uranium now. They'd be insane not to do it. Now, by the way, what else does Iran know? They know what happened with Gaddafi in Libya. Gaddafi gave up his weapons, and then the West said, thank you very much, and then we toppled him soon thereafter. So in other words, the weapons were a deterrent to the West going in there doing anything. Kim Jong-un, same shit. Why would Kim Jong-un give up any weapons if he knows, hey, when 
Somebody gave them up to you guys before. You went in there and toppled them immediately. So for North Korea, for Libya, for Saddam in Iraq, like the whole idea is, well, as long as I have a deterrent to Western aggression, I'll be okay. So we're mad that Iran is enriching uranium when we violated the deal, we pulled out of the deal, and now we're at the table for talks and we say, so you go back to abide by the agreement and then maybe we'll follow after, but you've got to do it first. This is lunacy. And now, by the way, again, you're dealing with a hardliner government. You're not dealing with Hassan Rouhani anymore. These aren't the moderates anymore. So they're not going to be, they're not going to be talked out of that shit. And so that gets us to where we are today. Because the U.S. didn't get back in on day one, which Biden should have done, um, and because the U.S. is being absurd with these negotiations, well, now it's, it's certainly possible that Israel tries to bomb some Iranian uh, nuclear facilities, which could spark an Iranian response, which could lead to a broader war. Um, the U.S., by the way, I haven't even brought this up yet. The U.S. Uh, brought in a new round of sanctions under the Trump administration. We were even sanctioning medicine going into Iran, which the International Criminal Court said, you're not allowed to do that. You have to stop. And we said, no, sorry. And so here we are. And now it's hilarious that the U.S. is saying to Iran, let me read the quote for you one more time, um, Tehran does not seem to be serious about returning to the table. We left the table, then we overturned the table, then we lit the table on fire, and now we're going, why don't you want to return to the table? What table? What table? You destroyed it. So, and guys, there are far-reaching implications for this as well. Apart from just the, the, the peace angle of it, that now we're much more likely to raise tensions and much more likely to have some sort of conflict over this, the U.S.'s word means nothing now. It means nothing. You can't craft this agreement and then we fuck it up and pull out of it. And then what? The next time you make another agreement with another nation, they're going to say, we don't believe a fucking word you're saying. Now, contrast that with China. They're doing the Belt and Road Initiative everywhere. They're, they're going around and saying, we're going to build your infrastructure. We're going to give you guys more material wealth and well-being. And we're going to make these economic deals. Now, really, it's empire through debt is what they're doing. But they're sticking by their word, number one. And they're giving people some material benefits, number two. It's, it would be a miracle if China doesn't become the world's sole superpower in the next 50 years compared to the U.S. Because the way we act is wholly irrational and psychotic on the world stage. This is psychotic shit. You crafted the deal, violated the deal, pulled out of the deal, said you were going to get back in, didn't get back in, and now you're chastising them to get back in the deal and saying, maybe we will, maybe we won't, after you do it first. This breakdown that I'm giving you right now is the breakdown that you should be hearing in CNN, that you should be hearing on MSNBC, that you should be hearing on the nightly news. They're not going to tell you any of this shit. They're just going to give you the quote from the State Department, and that's it. They'll give you none of the context, none of the information, none of the history, and so then people don't even know what the fuck's going on. You have to come here to get an accurate picture of what's going on in the world. And I'm just an asshole on YouTube with a microphone. It, it is unconscionable how terrible the media is at covering this stuff. It's unconscionable how the U.S. is acting internationally. And nobody's saying it. Share this segment far and wide, please. You know, every now and then we cover these stories that are just really substantive and Unfortunately, the way it works on YouTube is the squeaky wheel gets the grease. You guys like it much more if I'm doing some segment on fucking Ben Shapiro or Steven Crowder or Alex Jones, and it's conflict-driven, and it's that sort of stuff. That's what sells more on YouTube. This stuff I'm telling you guys right now, unfortunately, does not generate the views. Part of that's because of the algorithm, and they try to suppress us. But there is a genuine uh, issue here from the audience perspective that it just does it's not as sexy. People don't want to click on a video about Iran and foreign policy nearly as much as they want to click on one about personal conflict and debate. But this is important. 
and people need to know this stuff. So please share this stuff far and wide. Support the show if you can. Um, this is unconscionable. It's crazy. And it's incredibly disingenuous, too, and disgusting that the U.S. is acting this way. Get back in the deal. Formally apologize to Iran. And, it, look, get us back in a place where we're not escalating with every fucking country around the world and on the brink of war when we already have 70,000 other problems that we're dealing with. All right, next. Okay. I'm in the mood for some tacos. How do you guys feel about that? I'm in the mood for some tacos. So a new round of polls here. Democrats getting pummeled on virtually every issue. This is really something. So this is from the Winston Group, um, and uh, political polls tweeted this. Who would do a better job handling the economy? Republicans, 46%, plus seven over the Democrats. Gas prices, Republicans 47%, plus 12 over the Democrats. Inflation, Republicans 46%, plus 12 over the Democrats. The supply chain, Republicans 43%, plus seven over the Democrats. Democrats are getting trounced. Now, by the way, uh, this barely needs to be said, but most elections hinge on the economy and how the economy is doing. Um, And this is an area where it's a clean sweep for the Republicans on economic issues. That is the most pathetic thing I've ever seen in my life. The Democrats, on top of stripping their incredibly popular legislation day by day and making it worse and worse, they also have no message. What's the Democratic message? Please, I'll wait. Go ahead. What do they stand for? What do they believe in? What are they currently fighting for? I'll wait. I don't hear anything coming from the Democrats. Nothing. Nobody's making an aggressive case for even any of the good provisions that remain in the Build Back Better bill. Nobody. Nobody. So now you're getting radio silence from Biden, who's a zombie. Kamala's approval rating is 28%, so they're hiding her. Mayor Pete's out there, you know, taking month-long paternity leave during the supply chain crisis when he's a transportation secretary, and nominally he should be handling that. The Democrats are MIA, dog, MIA, getting nothing done, having no message, and letting the Republicans do nothing in return, but also just have a clean sweep now in terms of the perception of the American people as to who would do better with the economy. I've never seen a party so pathetic in my entire life. The fact, look, the Republicans should be the easiest people to beat on the planet. I mean, more than half the time, whenever they're talking about stuff, it's culture war bullshit. It's Dr. Seuss. It's uh, Mr. Potato Head. It's you name it. It's all nonsense. But since there's just a, a vacuum a black hole on the Democratic side of saying anything, that stuff even lands more than whatever the Democrats are saying because they're not saying anything. So they're just being totally defined by their opponents. There doesn't appear to be any sort of serious plan. The only thing they were working on, the Build Back Better bill, looks either dead or like it's going to be cut even more. So what do we got? We got nothing. We got nothing. Guys, Tea Party-like bloodbath coming in the midterms, without a doubt. Without a doubt clean sweep on the economy. Now, by the way, it's actually not true because what would the Republicans do with the economy? Well, we saw in 2017, they did more tax cuts for the rich. 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%. 
in their tax cut bill. Okay, that's what they do. That's not going to help working people. So people are wrong in their perception to think the Republicans would do better with the economy. Wrong, but they believe it. You have, uh, even on gas prices, I think uh, Biden tapped some of the U.S. reserves. I'm sure Trump would have done the same thing. So I don't see any real difference on that front. Uh, But Republicans are plus 12 just because they're viewed as more pro-oil and natural gas. On inflation, the whole reason for inflation is the supply chain. So for Republicans to get plus 12, when the supply chain issues started under the Republicans, they're just continuing under um, Democrats. I I just, there's no reason to believe that they would do any better with this at all. Because all their broad commentary on capitalism and the free market, that wouldn't fix anything about the supply chain. The problem is you have incredibly high demand because people are ordering stuff online from home and incredibly low supply because the ports are clogged because they were clogged originally with COVID PPE stuff being sent everywhere. And now they're clogged with other goods that people are ordering. So it's not true that the Republicans would do a better job, but since the Democrats are totally MIA with any sort of messaging campaign or PR campaign about anything, here we are. So what we're seeing here in the Biden era is like the anti FDR era because FDR came in, cleaned house, did the new deal, materially delivered for people. Biden didn't and is also not messaging anything. So they're just coasting until they get clonked in the head in the next election. And that's definitely what's going to happen. All right. Now, this is actually probably the most substantive story of the day, somehow even more substantive than uh, the story we just did on Iran. This story here is absolutely incredible. Um, no way in 2021 did anybody think something like this would come out in the United States of America. Look, we know that effectively slave labor is used, or at least like indentured servitude labor is used in a lot of developing countries. You have all these big corporations outsource these jobs and pay people pennies on the dollar and little kids in factories with no safety regulations. So we know that this sort of stuff exists because of globalization and outsourcing that you have like modern day slavery in many respects. Everybody knows in Libya, there was that story uh, a couple of years back that there were literally open slave markets there. So we know this stuff exists, but slavery to this day still exists in the United States of America. This is an incredible story. So let me show you this. This has been happening for a long time. Modern day slavery uncovered in South Georgia. So this is reported originally by the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Let me give you the specifics on this. Um, it's really something. So it's a years-long human trafficking operation that trapped migrant workers in modern-day slavery on South Georgia farms. And this is according to a federal indictment that was unsealed last week. So the victims include over 100 laborers who were smuggled from Mexico and Central America into, quote, brutal and inhumane working conditions. Under the threat of gun violence, Some were allegedly forced to dig for onions with their bare hands, earning only 20 cents for each bucket harvested. At least two people died on the job. Another was allegedly repeatedly raped. When they weren't out in the fields, workers were detained in work camps surrounded by electric fencing or held in cramped living quarters, including dirty trailers with raw sewage leaks. There was little to no access to food or safe drinking water. 24 accused members and associates of the criminal enterprise 
that perpetuated the exploitation now face a slew of felony charges. So the felony charges include mail fraud, mail fraud conspiracy, forced labor, forced labor conspiracy, money laundering conspiracy, and witness tampering. So there are two Georgia business owners who are, are implicated in this, but most of the people implicated in this are labor contractors or recruiters. So laborers, what, would, what they would do is they bring in these laborers and they were charged unlawful fees for transportation, food, and housing. And even though they were reputedly held for agricultural work, some workers were illegally used for lawn care and construction and repair tasks. And uh, to prevent escapes, members of the accused crime ring unlawfully confiscated workers' passports and documents. They also traded workers among themselves, according to the indictment. So the crime ring that orchestrated the human trafficking operation made over $200 million from the illegal scheme. And the way they did it is they exploited um, a certain type of visa. Exploited foreign workers were admitted to the U.S. through fraudulent use of the H-2A guest worker visa program, which has been booming in Georgia as farmers struggle to find domestic sources of labor. So in other words, Americans don't want to do the work. Americans don't want to do the work because the employers are unwilling to pay decent wages for it. And so instead, they bring in these uh, immigrant workers under the H-2A program, and they totally exploit them to the point where it's quite literally slavery. Um, now, under the H-2A program, a worker's legal status in the U.S. is contingent on remaining under the employment of the party that sponsored their visa. So do you see where this exploitation comes in? So yeah, we, you can come in the U.S., by the way, and they did it fraudulently in many respects. You can come in the U.S., we have this visa, but basically now I own you. I'm your employer and I own you. So you're going to eat what I want you to eat. You're going to drink what I want you to drink. We're going to keep you in an, in an electric fenced-in area. We're going to charge you for your food and your housing, even though the food and the housing is, is terrible. You're going to get paid 20 cents per um, you know, bucket of onions. And at the end of the day, with a lot of these people, I'm sure they ended up owing more money than they made. So you tell me what that is. If anything, that could be worse than slavery. That's worse. Because, like, we're going to force you to do all this work, not allow you to leave, say that we own you, and then, by the way, you owe us money at the end of the day. What the fuck? Um, so now here's the most important point, and this is crazy. Under the Trump administration, when, if they were to find something like this, they would go after the workers. So they would just, you know, round up the workers, ship them out, and say, that's it. Well, hold on now, because the, the ex exploitative circumstance that they were in is still there, and the employer is still functioning. Well, now under the, Obama, uh, under, excuse me, the Biden administration, now they're going after the employers. And so now they're, they're recognizing and acknowledging these are, they're literally, this is slavery in South Georgia. That's what this is. And so now there's charges against uh, the employers and against the people who recruited these uh, immigrant workers. And Jesus Christ, what a story this is. So, and by the way, th this isn't the only industry where this is the case. It's one of the industries where it's most likely to happen because you have uh, poor, uneducated immigrants fleeing a terrible situation and then they get exploited as a result of it. But this also happens, and Crystal Ball did a great segment on this not too long ago, in the trucking industry. There was this scam that the trucking industry would run, uh, which was, look, you work for me, 
you're going to rent to buy the truck that I'm giving you. So you'll pay me for the use of the truck, and then eventually you'll own the truck. And so now you need to go and get all these goods and deliver all these goods, go to the port, and then you take it elsewhere. And at the end of the day, the amount they would charge them uh, would be more or just slightly less than what they would make from actually delivering the stuff. And so you'd have these truckers who are working for you who you're either not paying or paying very, very little. And so they're doing all the work. And, you know, the, the trucking company is making a killing. And so it, it's a modern-day exploitative slavery-like scenario. And then now they're having a hard time finding truckers because they're, they were basically slaves. And that's another thing that led into the problem with the supply chain crisis. It's like, okay, you want truckers, pay them a real wage. Pay them a real wage. Give them real benefits. Don't do this scam thing where it's like you pay for the truck and you're going to rent to buy it, so you pay me for it, but then you get the stuff. And, oh, look, you didn't deliver enough goods under as tight of a timeline, so now you owe me money for your day of work. This economy is a house of cards. It's an absolute joke. It, again, I knew that this stuff was happening with uh, exploiting labor overseas with outsourcing and globalization. We all knew that. Sweatshops, no safety standards, underage workers making all these goods. I did not know the extent to which this was happening in the United States. I didn't. And effectively, this is the government, federal indictment, very clear. This is forced labor charges. This is slavery happening in 2021 in the United States in South Georgia. And the details of it are astounding. If you don't think it's time to totally change this system, I don't know what to tell you. Also that you can get, you know, whatever, some onions at the grocery store for 2 $3 less. No, it's the right thing to do. Go after the employers, lock them up, and let's create genuinely ethical industries and do it through regulation of the marketplace, do it through new rules. It's time to change the system because, you know, we like to think we've evolved so much from the days of feudalism, but when you read a story like this, it's like, have we really? Maybe not. Okay, next. Mm. Last story of the day. So ever since Glenn Youngkin beat Terry McAuliffe, the issue of CRT, critical race theory, has been front and center when it comes to the culture war. And um, so now you have in New Hampshire, there's this anti-CRT bill that's been crafted by Republicans. And they really mess up here because they give up the game as to what the CRT stuff is really about. Now, there's a story that came out recently about there's a, a woman who saw that their kid was learning some stuff about Martin Luther King Jr. and the quotes, and she called the school to complain and said, I want you to stop teaching this critical race theory to my kid. So now the civil rights movement and talking about Martin Luther King is critical race theory? That's what you're going to call critical race theory. So in other words, you just don't want any any information, any facts about uh, the civil rights movement or liberation movements to be included in teaching American history, because why? Probably because on some level they were against it all along. Okay, that's one story which was insane. Look at the nature of this bill from New Hampshire Republicans. Meet New Hampshire's new anti-critical race theory bill. Teachers' loyalty, prohibition added. 
The highlighted portion says, no teacher shall advocate communism, socialism, or Marxism as a political doctrine or any other doctrine or theory which includes the overthrow by force of the government of the United States or of this state in any public or state-approved school or in any state institution. So, now, to be fair, they say no teacher shall advocate communism, socialism, or Marxism. So, now I would submit to you there's definitely a difference between advocating it and just teaching about it, but my guess is are they really going to be so specific and so nuanced as to say you're teaching about socialism or Marxism or communism and that's okay versus this teacher is promoting it and that's not okay. My guess is any talk about socialism, communism, or Marxism is just going to be a no-go. You're not allowed to do it. Well, then you're not really educating people, are you? If you're saying, we don't like these concepts, so don't talk about it at all. That would seem to me to be deeply against academic freedom and also freedom of, but it gets worse. Oops, do I have the wrong one here? Let me see. Ah, fuck. All right, let me pull this up because they gave me the wrong graphic. So hold on one second. I got to go back to Twitter and pull it. Here we go. I found it. Here we go. No teacher shall advocate any doctrine or theory promoting a negative account or representation of the founding and history of the United States of America in New Hampshire public schools, which does not include the worldwide context of now outdated and discouraged practices. Such prohibition includes but is not limited to teaching the United States was founded on racism. Okay, so now you're just taking a stand against historical facts. Now, I'm not saying the U.S. was only founded on racism, but you can't deny that was a big part of what we were founded on. You can't deny it. It's just a fact. Whether it's the Native American genocide, whether it's slavery or Jim Crow. I mean, for fuck's sake, we had a three-fifths compromise in the Constitution saying that black people count as three-fifths of a person. Are you going to claim that's not racism? Are you going to claim many of the founding fathers didn't have slaves? Of course they did. But, guys, again... No teacher shall advocate any doctrine or theory promoting a negative account or representation of the founding and history of the United States of America. So what does that mean? All the negative parts, not allowed to talk about it. This is literally the most anti-intellectual, anti-freedom of speech, anti-accuracy position anybody could take. Because, guys, both things matter. The good things about America matter, but also the negative things matter. And... I mean, what, we can't talk about the, the nuking of Japanese civilians in Hiroshima and Nagasaki? We can't talk about Japanese internment? We can't talk about slavery and Jim Crow and Native American genocide? We can't talk about um, the illegal and offensive war in Iraq, which killed hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians minimum? We can't talk about the torture that was carried out by the Bush administration? Now, again, look, I'm... I care about all the information. So I also care about talking about the civil rights movement, which was wonderful. I also care about talking about uh, the First Amendment and case law history of free speech in this country, which is wonderful. I care about talking about the Marshall Plan. So I want to talk about 
everything. I want to talk about all of the facts about our history, the good and the bad. Give me all of it. Donald Trump is as American as apple pie, and so is Martin Luther King Jr. What they're saying is you're not allowed to talk about anything negative or portray anything in a negative fashion. Well, that is just disgusting rank propaganda. And if this was coming out of a, a textbook in Iran or a bill in Iran or Russia or China, you would say this is the most grotesque, comical, cartoonish propaganda I've ever seen in my entire life. And you'd be correct to say that. So all this CRT moral panic, they're really giving away the game here. Because it's not just about, look, we're against racial sectarianism and we're against calling all white people racist or whatever. That's, the, that's when you put lipstick on the pig, you could say, well, that's what the concern is about. But very clearly, if you look at the text of the bills that are popping up around it, it's not about that. It's about don't say anything bad about the U.S. We believe in American exceptionalism, which is just another term for American supremacy. So we believe we're better than the rest of the world. Bury all the negative stuff about us. Bury all the negative facts about our history. Only play up the positive stuff about it. And we don't believe in freedom of speech. We don't believe in uh, academic openness. And don't you even talk about other political and economic ideologies probably because they feel threatened by them and they don't have any substantive rebuttals to them, by the way. So, I mean, this is really brazen, and everybody should be against it. And it's such a colossal overreach, and unfortunately, there's not going to be much talk about it. All right, y'all, I think we are done. Let me go through real quick one more time and just take a look, make sure we got all of our stories. I have been missing some from time to time. So we had Alex Jones, we had Tucker, we had uh, Chris Cuomo's firing, we had Kirsten Cinema, we had Matt Gates. Trump brags about destroying Roe versus Wade. Trump fixed COVID, he says. Bernie supporters warned you. Biden's bringing back Trump's immigration policies, artificial intelligence on how Trump and Biden were covered. We got Iran. Dems getting pummeled in new polls, modern-day slavery, and CRT. Yes, we are done, baby. All right, I love you guys. Everybody have a great rest of your day. I'll talk to you soon. I'm out. Peace.